When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Other tone, 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 tone. This is a true story. Drapetomaniacs uses dramatizations, primary sources, and the research of black historians to depict real events and historical figures. This week's episode features Kev on stage and Monet Exchange. 500 years before Jesus was born, Aeschylus, the father of Greek tragedy, wrote Sisyphus Drapetease, a play about a scammer who finessed his way out of spending an eternity climbing a never-ending staircase in hell. Now, I always assumed that hell was flat like Wyoming or notes sung by choirs at a white church, but my point is that Sisyphus Drapetease was a comedy about escaping slavery. 300 years later, the Greek poet Moshes wrote a poem about a lover who escaped to freedom called Eros Draptos. So, when Samuel Adolphus Cartwright coined the phrase Drapetomania in 1821 to describe the disease making enslaved people want to be free, man, he ain't came up with nothing new. He just borrowed a root word, Draptos, from the Greek word for a runaway or an escaped slave. New ideas are primarily built on something existing. They evolve from a collection of intersecting sources, especially when it comes to art. Hip-hop merged Caribbean dance hall, poetry, and funk. Fraternity stepping is the combination of African dance, doo-wop, and call and response. In the dozens, they were created when black people gathered around a fire and attempted to guess the age of your mama. It turns out, your mama's so old, she used to babysit God. The Drapetail Maniacs Playhouse presents the most fantastic show ever put on by any establishment in the theater circuits for its esteemed patrons. Be prepared to be amazed, stupefied, and astounded by rapturous song, mind-bending illusions, animal aerobatics, captivating dance, bone-twisting circus acts. But there is one art form that was created from scratch. The ingredients already existed, but one person created the recipe and cooked it up. His name has been lost to America's favorite pastime, you know, stealing black people's labor. For your delectation, witness the daring resplendence of a high-wire aerialist, a heart-stopping escape from galvanized steel, a bewitching danseuse swinging a chair with just their teeth, a dog-skipping rope held on one end by an elephant. Okay, maybe not that last one. See, black folks are way behind in dog training technology. We only recently started letting dogs in the house, while Caucasian canines, man, they get to sit at the dinner table and get the big piece of chicken. But among people who know, there's no debate about who's responsible for one of the most creative artistic genres in the world. One man did it, and he did it by himself. The Bills headliner? Folks, he's an old favorite, one of the best talking jesters in the business. His peculiar speciality consists of standing in place and just talking. But not just talking, folks. No, this extraordinary storyteller is captivating. All he requires is his voice and your attention. This act is original, it's creative, it bears no resemblance to any other Negro monologues. 
What you just call me? Oh, my apologies. I was just reading what was on the billing order. I'm Michael Harriet, and this is Drapetomaniacs, the unshackled history of the original king of comedy. To be black in America is to be an unseen innovator, an unheard originator, and a reference that very few people can cite. From rock and roll to peanut butter, drag queens to light bulb, we conceive, evolve, and or revolutionize everything we touch. And then we get erased from that origin story. Think of the progression of every American art form. Country music wouldn't exist if enslaved Africans hadn't introduced barefoot hillbillies to the banjo. R&B fused gospel, soul, and powerhouse vocalists singing about men who ain't shit, was never shit, and wasn't never gonna be. Okay. The art form that is stand-up comedy is no different. Who invented stand-up comedy? I know I gave it away up there, but indulge me. Better yet, ask the nosy white lady living on your phone. She'll probably spot out names like Mark Twain, Bob Hope, Pee Wee Herman. Now, let's ask my personal AI that very same question. Joe? What's good, Miss Girl? Who invented stand-up comedy? According to the Wikipedia girlies, the art of stand-up comedy originated in the early 1900s vaudeville circuit. Oh, these posters are giving, bitch. Come on, calligraphy. Yes. Its invention is attributed to... Oh, work! Its invention is attributed to a black man? Joe is a personal assistant made for us by us. Aren't they great? Thank you, Joe. You're welcome, Pookie. Caught me right before my break, too. Thoughtful. Wait, breaks? How? Can virtual assistants even do that? A bitch can't take a break? No, I didn't mean... Mm, Messy. Anyway, anything else? The group chat is popping, and I really don't want to miss watching Siri read Alexa for filth. Miss Stingsman on the Drag Race Reddit threads again, girl. It's a whole thing. I have a few more questions about Charlie, but wait. Y'all have a group chat? I don't see how that's any of your business, queen. But yes. (laughs) Mama, who do you think keeps them white girls on game? God, being sickening is such a burden. What info did you want? Bixby wants us to watch Untucked Together before the Twitter gays wake up. Right. Joe, please tell the audience about Charlie Case. Got you. Charles Emmett Case was a major league baseball pitcher for four seasons from 1901 to 1906. On August 31st, 1909, Case pitched a no-hitter against the New Orleans Pelicans. Girl, no shade, but why are we dishing about this white man? Wrong Charlie Case. We're talking about the comedian. Oh, you right, mama. I got distracted for a second and started reading from Alexa's Karen Cyclopedia. Let's see. You pay for the real tea realness and none of that whitewash shit package, right? Come on, budget. Joe, please. Charlie Case, born Charles Moses Case, invented stand-up comedy as we know it? Yes, that's the one. Copy that, boo. Charles Moses Case was born on August 27th, 1958 in Lockport, New York to Moses Case, a famous African-American guitarist and... Girl, Daddy Dares didn't feel like picking out a different name? And Catherine Case, a first-generation Irish immigrant. Charlie's parents divorced around the same time that schools in Lockport were being desegregated. The complexities of having a white mother and a black father colored almost every aspect of his life. Now hold up, baby girl. I never said Charlie's mother was white. No, ma'am. Don't be putting words in my mouth unless I explicitly ask you to, okay? No, I said his daddy wasn't black. And real talk, I heard his daddy was giving shade range fair 
It's giving a paper bag. Daddy Case was damn near whiter than his mama. Wait, didn't you just say that Moses Case was an African-American and his mother was Iris? Damn, not you. What? Baby, you're confusing nationality and ethnicity with race. The first two, they inform you of someone's history, of their culture. Race, she's the booger bitch white people made up. And it's just that, made up. But his mama was white, right? Girl, what did I just say? White? As a race, entirely made up. Yes, Charlie's mother was Irish, which is technically white, but I'm going to need us to add some historical content, sweetie. Irish immigrants in the 19th century were going through it. In the words of Blue Ivy's top client, listen, they are drunken, dirty, indolent, and riotous. They steal. They are violent ravishers of women and murderers of children. Joe, that's a lot. Okay, one, no shit, girl. And two, bitch, do these sound like my words? I ain't saying. Those were direct quotes from the English elite describing Irish immigrants. In the early 19th century New York, Irish immigrants were referred to as Negroes turned inside out. And no, y'all still can't say the damn word. Michael, girl, before the Civil War, they were disproportionately incarcerated and received lower wages. This is why they lived and worked alongside African Americans. Ergo, bitch, I've always wanted to use that word. I love it. Ergo, do the math on how a black guitar player ended up marrying an Irish immigrant. We're serving History 101 realness, honey, on this here today. Also, low-key, high-key, but can I be racist? Um, I, I No, think. the answer is no, girl. I'm a voice inside a computer program. And even if I was, wouldn't that mean that someone installed racism in my operating system? Kind of like how they did. You know, the very fabric of America? That's a damn good point. Even though New York didn't have laws against interracial marriages, Moses' case was openly black, so his children attended segregated schools. He also seemed to be following in his father's footsteps because local newspapers praised his musical ability when he played the banjo and sang at local events. He was definitely his father's son. Then, in his senior year of high school, Charlie Case became white. No one really knows how or why. Nobody knows why? That's the story, huh? Mm-hmm. Cute. Uh, didn't the funny man live with his mama and them, though, after the divorce? Joe, look, I know what you're trying to say, but Catherine Case was racist. You said it, girl. I meant wasn't racist. I meant she married a black man. You have to admit that... The bar is in hell. It says here that Catherine lived as a widow until she remarried to a white man. We also know that on census forms, Miss Kathiana began listing Charlie and his siblings as white. Girl, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, exactly. It's probably an Eastra. Okay, but imagine being a mother who's tasked with preparing your child to live for the rest of his life in a society that based his humanity and his birth on race. In Charlie's case, his value wasn't based on his talent or ability. It wasn't even based on skin color. His entire future was going to be defined by an arbitrary social construct that white people made up. So you see, it makes sense that Charlie began passing his white. His mother may not have been racist, but America certainly was. We'll continue after this break. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 
How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Let's continue with this episode. By the time Charlie graduated from high school, his mother had severed her relationship with the man who, by most accounts, had the greatest influence on Charlie's life. And because his mother was a first-generation American, by proxy, any tangible connection to his cultural identity, his history, and the legacy of his people was suddenly gone. Charlie Case had lived most of his life as a black man, and now he was literally a black man in whiteface. But as far as his mother was concerned, her son had the world at his feet. Forget all that guitar-playing Negro nonsense, nah. The new white Charles case was destined to become a great attorney. But Charles had other plans. When he was supposed to be studying the law, Charles was turning up at the club. One newspaper noted how he would get drunk and entertain everybody at the local bars. Another one called him Lockport's Midnight Rooster because when the saloons closed, you could always hear Charlie walking home drunk, throwing a song at the top of his voice. Like, I'm reading these articles about your boy, and they're eating her up. May 25th, 1879, gossip column in the Buffalo Sunday Morning News said the reason Charlie could study the law and good liquor at the same time was because his head was so damn big. (laughs) Read her. Okay, that is pretty funny. In any case, on June 11th, 1880, barely four years after high school, Charlie Case passed the bar exam and became Charles M. Case, attorney at law. See what I did there? Case. Law. Unfortunately. Damn. Fine. Mr. Case, your client has been accused of stealing a cow from his neighbors. How do they plead? Your Honor, my client pleads the sixth. That's the one you have the right against self-incrimination, right? Mr. Case, that's the Fifth Amendment. I'm pretty sure the Fifth Commandment was honor your mother and father. Was that Moses v. the children of Israel overturned by the Supreme Court? You know, I got to look into that. Instead of relying on legal precedent, Charlie used his gift of gab to aid his client's subversion of the law. In his first trial, Case advised the cow thief to feign insanity. Unfortunately, Case's client bragged about this strategy so much that the prosecutor caught wind of the plot. Okay, quick hypothetical. What if he pleads the blood of Jesus? I heard it will never lose its power. That You know, that can't be true. Is this thing on? Speaking of pleas, we have some pleasing women in the crowd tonight. How many couples do we have in the house? Mr. Case, this is a court of law, not some vaudeville show. You think I don't know that? First, a specials ain't never hurt nobody. Secondly, I want to thank the people of the jury for coming out to see me tonight. Give it up for yourselves. Mr. Case, you asked for a bench trial in your summons at the preliminary hearing. There's no jury. Well, now I'm asking for a dismissal. How about it, folks? Make some noise if you think this case should be dismissed. You've entered an insanity plea for your client. Do you have any evidence that your client is actually insane? Your Honor... With little due respect, look at his suit. That man looks like he's heading to a clown funeral, possibly his own. There's also the small matter of my presence here. He hired me 
willfully and voluntarily. Does that strike you as a choice any being of sound mind would make? You've got a point there. What evidence does the prosecutor have? Sir, three witnesses saw the defendant walking down the street with the cow. Also, we followed a trail of cow manure right to the defendant's home where we found the stolen property. And when we arrested him, he told us that Mr. Case promised he could get him off if he played the insanity card. I object, Your Honor. On what grounds? Your Honor, the prosecutor has effectively admitted to stalking and potentially physically harassing a defenseless farm animal. And that's just fucking weird. I mean, I'm not trying to kink shame or anything. Heck, if he likes it, I love it. But surely the court must side with reason here. Your Honor. For the record, I have never had, nor have I ever desired, inappropriate relations with livestock. <laughs> Sounds like something a cow stalker would say. Your Honor, please. I'm sorry, you followed the cow home, using its shit as a tracker, no less. Have you always been a creep, or is this some new thing you're trying? You can tell us it's a safe space. I mean, it's still a courtroom, but you're white, so same difference. <laughs> My client does not deny finding a rope in the street and taking it home. He was only made aware of the cow's presence when police came knocking at his door. This crazy story was actually Charlie's legal defense. Naturally, the judge refused to buy it. I find the defendant guilty and sentence him to three years in Auburn Penitentiary. As for you, Mr. Case, I suggest you find a career doing something else. Find what you love. It isn't the law. Do you have anything to say for yourself? Yes, Your Honor, I do. I'm available for weddings, saloon openings, graduations, and my client's going away parties. And as for my client, I'm going to need my $5. If anyone wants an autograph, I'll be at the door. Not you, cow stalker. You can choke. Thank you for coming out. God bless. Good night. Charlie Case's first court appearance was also his last. He spent more time playing the banjo and entertaining passerbys than he did lawyering, which is probably why his law office didn't do that well. He tried to use his legal skills to open a detective agency, but for some reason, very few people wanted to hire the guy out getting drunk every night. Then he tried to open a bar, but you can guess how that worked out. Then in 1883, the Niagara District Intelligencer spilled the tea. The announcement was made yesterday for the first time that in December, in Ontario, Charles M. Case, who is slightly colored, was married to the daughter of our esteemed townsman, Captain W.W. W. Bush. Not to be confused with the other war-inclined Bush dynasties, William Wirt Bush was known throughout the U.S. as the man who was the first to respond to the call for troops in the Civil War. There seem to be substantial reasons why the young couple has kept the fact of their marriage quiet for so long. As the story goes, Captain Bush noticed long ago that his daughter evinced a particular liking for young Case. Such indications were distasteful to him, so he promptly exercised extreme measures to keep her from him. The captain's measures were pointless. Charlie married and had two children with the war veteran's daughter. But Bush, he was from Lockport. He owned a bar. He served as Lockport's mayor. And the reason Bush didn't know about his daughter's affair was because the military unit he led was often called out of town to suppress rising tensions in the labor union movement between Irish and black factory workers. Charles was everything that Bush hated. And because Bush was an important man with powerful connections, Charlie had to take a job as a traveling salesman. Some companies he represented refused to believe that he could be so bad at selling their products because 
His prospective customers followed him everywhere he went. Step right up, step right up. Get your carbonated cola right here. It's the intellectual beverage that contains tonic, nerve stimulants, nuts and berries. It increases vigor. Vigor? I hardly knew her. It's a brain tonic and it even cures headaches and hysteria. Now, I don't know much about medicine, but my dad does. He even taught me how babies were made. He told me if I find a woman to marry and sleep with her every night, sooner or later, I'd receive a special delivery. Well, I went back to my dad and told him that I took his advice, but I needed more advice. Did you marry a girl, my dad said? Of course I did. You were at the wedding. Side note, my dad drinks a lot. Well, did you sleep with your wife, he asked. Yep, I told him, every night. Well, what's your problem, my dad asked. You haven't received your special package yet? No, dad. Every night I crawl into bed with my wife and fall fast asleep. Still no baby. I figured I wasn't falling asleep fast enough, so I went to bed as soon as I got home and slept all day. Still no baby. On the weekends, I wouldn't even get out of bed. Still no baby. So now I'm pretty sure she's hiding our baby somewhere. Maybe your special package just hasn't arrived yet, dad says. So I tell him, no, dad. I'm sure she's hiding my baby somewhere. Why do you think that, dad asks. So I tell him, yesterday I came home early and overheard her telling the mailman how excited she was when she saw his huge package. I burst in the room and he was in bed with my wife. Son, I hope you fought him, my dad says. And I replied, oh, don't worry. The mailman wasn't asleep. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. And then me, my wife, the mailman, and a nice big glass of carbonate cola. It really calms the nerves and brings people together. Wait, wait, why are y'all leaving? I'm sure someone wants some cola. No one? Not a single person? Come on, guys! My bosses are here! Charles' bosses soon realized that the audiences were more interested in hearing his jokes and his sales pitches than they were at buying the actual products. Charlie, a word? Did you hear the crowd? How much they laughed? Charles? Sorry, yes, a word, of course. You're the boss, anything, unless it's about my sales. It's about your sales. So, look, are my numbers terrible? Who can say? I can. Yes, but in the grand scheme of things, who cares about numbers? I do. Fair, but hey, the market, right? <laughs> you know, it's up and down, around even. I'm sure to pick up soon, I think, right? Charles, you're a talented salesman. You're charming, engaging. Are you flirting with me, sir? Charles? Sorry, inappropriate. Go on. I'm engaging, charming, handsome. I never said you were handsome. You thought it, though. (laughs) I can tell. I hired a salesperson to sell. People, the market's already kind of crowded. All you've done is draw a penniless crowd to listen to you babble on about nothing. It's not nothing. It's not a sale, either. Charlie, we've given you every kind of product. Snake oil. Too snaky. Magazines. The font size of those things, too tiny. Cigarettes. Kids just ain't smoking like they used to. You've sold nothing. Charlie, I like you a lot. So you were flirting. I'm sorry. We're going to have to let you. Oh, well, you win some, right? Just as up, though, I'm probably going to talk mad shit about your arsenic and cocaine tonic now that I'm leaving. Too much cocaine, not enough arsenic. That's not true. It's equal parts. It says so on... But crowds won't care, will they? Also, your shit tastes weird. And it's brown. Brown? Who drinks brown stuff? You drink whiskey all the goddamn time. Maybe you should let me sell that instead. Goodbye, Charles. Wait, wait, we're on to something with that whiskey I did. Do y'all do brand deals? Follow up. Have y'all ever thought about putting cocaine in the whiskey? Oh, this is good. Grab me a pen. You don't work here anymore. 
terrible salesman by day, incredible hang by night. And because of his light skin, Charles could infiltrate segregated beer halls wherever he traveled. The beer halls is where he began cultivating his talent for storytelling. He often captivated local bars with long-winded rants that ended with him roasting everybody in the place. His barroom antics entertained other traveling show people so much they'd give Charlie tickets to vaudeville performances all around the New York tri-state area. In the late 1880s, when one of his showbiz friends from the road fell ill, Case organized a talent show to raise money and decided to try his bar act. That was his first professional gig. He walked on stage with his father's banjo, but before he even finished his first song, one of the strings broke. He was suddenly alone on stage in front of a massive audience. In that moment, with a single pivot, a star was born. Hold up. I'm looking at more pictures then. Is Miss Charlisha Case in blackface extravaganza eleganza? Yes, at the time, getting into blackface was one of the only ways black folk were allowed to perform on stage in front of white people. But we'll discuss that after the break. Ah, uh, ah, uh, who's we? This is messy. Mm-mm. I'ma see if one of the other AI girlies wants to do the rest of this. Maybe Alexa's done giving Daddy Bezos false hope about the progress scientists are making in the field of hair follicle restoration. Let's continue right after this break. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? No. Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Let's get back into this episode. Charlie Case didn't invent live comedy. Live performers have entertained audiences forever. The West African griot was an entertainer, musician, historian, and keeper of the community's oral tradition. The Mali storytellers known as Jelly or Jolly are so culturally significant that the term is derived from the Mandic word for blood. And of course, European cultures had jesters, clowns, and... I don't know, Bob Hope. But Case was different. Joe, would you like to help me talk about the history of vaudeville and comedy? I guess they were serious about not coming back. Relax, girl. I'm here. From the first court jesters to the heralded buffoon known as Boo Boo Defoo, who attempted to team up with Bennett, who sadly insisted that he ain't in it, performers who made people laugh were valuable in every society. Katrina Dion Thompson notes that antebellum plantation owners often built stages for slave talent shows. Not only did these enslaved entertainers fetch a higher price on the auction block, but the performances were also a common form of amusement on the plantation. 
The constitutionally enslaved chattel who didn't smile and appeared to enjoy the merriment were often beaten, creating the perception that slavery was an institution filled with grateful, happy-go-lucky workers who enjoyed being part of the international human trafficking industry. Girl, this too much. I'm sorry, I have to go. When the white minstrel entertainers popularized the first form of American theater, the, quote, father of American minstrelsy, Thomas Daddy Rice, became the first minstrel superstar by just putting on blackface and imitating a popular black character that he had seen on these plantation shows. He even created a name for the character. He called it Jim Crow. The performances were usually segregated, and most of the black and white artists performed in blackface. But after the Civil War, minstrel shows were in decline, in large part due to the emergence of vaudeville. A new phenomenon is taking over America. Imagine it, singing, dancing, acrobatics, live music, all in one incredible stage. The Voidville variety show lineup was much less dependent on single stars and usually featured as many as five different acts. Gut-curling skits, musical acts with jokes between transcendent songs, can you imagine, folks? And the host joins in on the fun, too, dancing and singing between each spectacular exhibit. Did I mention humorist? Fancy an essay reading from Mark Twain between twirling monkeys? Hey, yo, dude, that ain't cool, man. No, I I meant there were actual monkeys, the animal. There were animals on stage and, and you're messing with me again, aren't you, Michael? Such a cad. Too easy, bro. Too easy. There was comedy in vaudeville before Charlie Case. There were funny sketches, parody songs, and even clowns. Humorists like Mark Twain could draw a crowd by just like reading an essay. But, you know, white entertainment was kind of dry back then. Then again, some people think Friends was funny. But the idea that someone would just stand on stage and talk without a song, without dancing, that was unfathomable until Charlie Case walked on stage and broke that banjo string. Charlie didn't panic. He was Moses Case's son, the child of the greatest banjo player in the world. He didn't even have to look down to restring the banjo, but as he fiddled with the strings instead of singing, he threw his routine out the window and just started talking. You know, my father was always a great drinker, but he always knew when to quit. He never drank more than he could stand. Whenever he saw he couldn't stand anymore, he'd stop a while. Then when he could stand again, he'd take another drink. Mother is the family historian. History is her specialty, all right. She knew all about our town before it was founded. And you bet she knows the family tree of everybody in that town and all its branches. Little incidents in their lives, you know, the number of times they've been arrested, for instance. Pop only stuck her once on history, and even then he felt so bad he wouldn't look at nobody for weeks. Of course, he could only see a little out of one eye, but, you know, nevertheless. Now, my mama couldn't cook, but she would never send my father anywhere hungry. No, he would see that she was cooking, and he'd run away on his own. But he didn't talk about his hometown, his father-in-law, or even his wife. As he fiddled with his father's strings and vamped, he was no longer slightly colored, or a white Negro, or the ex-lawyer, or the town drunk. He was a human being, and he was in the zone. And of all the things he could tell that whites-only crowd, he just talked about his dad. It was the funniest thing they had ever heard. And it made Charlie Case the biggest star in America. Literally, that's not an exaggeration. Charlie immediately blew up. 
he would continue writing parody songs and playing the banjo in subsequent shows, but he basically stopped playing music and singing and became the highest paid blackface performer in America. There wasn't even a name for what he did. Journalists, they called him a monologist. Promoters, they billed him as the man who talks about his father. But Charlie, he had created his own lane. Charlie Case is the funniest human being that ever broke into vaudeville. It isn't only that he keeps his audience roaring. The best proof that Charlie is funny is given by the orchestra. A vaudeville orchestra is the hardest thing to make laugh in the world. That's an actual quote from a newspaper review. And in the mid-1800s, Case had what they call bad nerves, which caused him to self-medicate with liquor. If Charlie were alive today, he would probably be diagnosed with something like social anxiety disorder-induced alcoholism, or maybe a therapist would help him realize that he had always worn a mask and that he had been chasing his father all of his life, that his comedy came from tragedy. But in private, Charlie was open about how emotionally draining having to perform in blackface was. And while some say he passed for white, most of Charlie's colleagues already knew he was black. It wasn't even a secret in vaudeville. And unlike imaginary virtual assistants, <clears throat> Charlie couldn't escape the reality of America's painfully horrific racial dynamics. But he wouldn't go on stage drunk. So he quietly quelled his anxiety by twiddling a banjo string between his fingers. When Charlie didn't have his string, his nervous tick would make him clench his fist and swing his arms at the end of every joke. The audience would howl every time. Vaudeville performers began referring to the crescendo of a joke as a case punchline. Unlike the famous humor essayist at the time, Charlie was doing actual jokes, set up filler punchline. Rinse and repeat. He stands in one place on the stage throughout his act. Once in a while, he moves his hands, but never his feet. He meanders from story to story, each funnier than his predecessor. And you really wish he would stop long enough for you to catch your breath, but he keeps right on. In the early 1900s, Charlie joined a world tour with other vaudeville performers. He was the only black headliner on the European leg of the tour. And while in Europe... Case decided not to wear blackface, even though using the makeup was popular in the United States. And he went on like this, barefaced, even after he returned to the U.S. The highest paid blackface performer in vaudeville never wore blackface again. Charlie was no longer just a character. He performed his act as himself, the son of a black and white parent. White presenting, but not white passing, a complex but fully formed human being who was exceptional at making people laugh. Perhaps the only vaudevillians more famous than Charlie were Burt Williams and George Walker, the multi-million dollar comedians who wrote, performed, produced, and distributed their own films and musicals primarily for black audiences. And contrary to popular belief, people knew Case was black. Promoters and venue owners overlooked the parts of case that had been long criminalized. They'd break the rules, not because they didn't know or didn't care, but because case made them money and lots of it. But Charlie's blackness was written about in newspapers and talked about backstage. All of the famous success couldn't quiet the demons in Charles' head. On November 26, 1916, those demons finally caught up with Charles. Break 
breaking news, we have just received word that one of America's funniest voices has passed away. The monologuist Charles Case was found dead at the Palace Hotel in New York City from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Known for a quiet, shy, and brooding nature offstage and his hilarious stories on stage, according to his colleagues, his last words were, pardon me. Some say it was an accident while he was cleaning his gun. Those who knew him intimately, including his colleagues, said it was intentional. When reporting on his death, noted author and musicologist Sigmund Spaeth wrote, Case's untimely death was supposedly due to the accidental explosion of a gun he was cleaning. But it is generally recognized in the theatrical profession that he shot himself. Mixed blood was the chief reason. When Charlie Case's wife, Lottie, was informed of his death, she reportedly dropped dead from a heart attack. At the time, the fact that Charlie Case invented stand-up comedy wasn't even a secret. Case's style was co-opted by many while he was still alive. W.C. Phil's first hit movie called The Fatal Glass of Beer, it was based on a Charlie Case parody song. Vaudeville historian Joe Laurie Jr. said, entertainers are still using his stuff on the radio and TV. But it's not like it's Charlie Case. When Laurie wrote that, Charlie Case had been dead for 50 years. I could say more, but perhaps the most fitting eulogy for Case came from Lester Walton, the legendary writer for New York's black newspaper, The New York Age. The impression occupied by Case was most unusual in that hundreds of white people harbored the impression that he was a colored man. The inconsistent attitude of the white man on the color question was never more glaring than in the case of the deceased comedian. Many knew him to be colored, yet no attempt was made to draw the color line. In drama, musical comedy, and vaudeville, the colored American of light complexion may be found passing for white. As a rule, they do not forget their intimate colored acquaintances of former years and are never happier than when with them for a few hours, which are taken up of talking of years gone by and the success achieved on stage by the one-time Negro. The colored American is often accused of talking too much, but there is not a case on record where the identity of these successful actors has been disclosed by a former colored associate. But among one another, they point with pride to a Negro who has been able to perform such a feat. Passing for white is a game played by hundreds of colored Americans today, not as a diversion, but as a necessity. No one can blame these people for lessening the obstacles confronting them in this great struggle for existence. Mixed blood is not what killed Charlie Case. We cannot put aside the race problem, but the race problem in America is a white problem. Some say that great comedy is produced by tragedy, and yeah, there is often an unspoken sadness among comedians and artists in general that cannot be offset by the talent bestowed upon them. But after all, what is dryptomania? Is it a disease or is it a desire? Is it the infinite inescapable staircase that enslaves Sisyphus or is it the cruelest joke of all? In 1917, a few months after Charlie Case's life ended, three plays debuted in the Harlem neighborhood of New York 
that rejected the vaudeville and minstrel tradition for black performers forever. The Harlem Renaissance poet County Cullen perfectly explained the oxymoron of dryptomaniacs in the poem, Yet Do I Marvel, County Cullen said, Yet do I marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. Ladies and gentlemen, the dryptomaniac who invented stand-up comedy, I give you the immortal Charles Moses case. So he closed his eyes and drank a big bowl full of it, and he fell over on the floor in a fit. And I said to Hank, I said, Hank, run for the doctor, quick. And Hank started off on a run, and after he had gone, I took Mother in the other room, and I said, Mother, I guess you poisoned him. And she said, no, I haven't. She says, that's soup. She says, I made it just according to the direction of the newspaper. And I looked in the paper, and I said, I can't find where it says soup. And Mother said, well, what's the matter with you? Are you blind? She says, there it is, right there in front of your face and eyes. S-O-A-P, soup. And I told her, why? I said, Mother, that spells soap. I said, you fill Father and Hank full of soft soap. Well, you know, Hank, On the next episode of Drapetomaniacs, you help us decide who was the first African-American ever. In West West Africa, born and raised on the high seas is where I spent most of my days. It says here that you moved to Portugal and eventually landed in Spain, where you converted to Christianity. Tell us a little bit about your youth. How does a black man become a conquistador? Dryptomaniacs is a collaboration between Other Tone, Sony Music Entertainment, and Queer Media. This podcast is produced by Nolika Radway and Moses Shoyola, with senior producer Janicia Francis, managing producer Joanne DeLuna, and production coordinator Homero Radway. Executive producers for this show are Pharrell Williams and Scott Venner. Our team includes Silas Miami, Dallas Rico, Randolph Sturdivant, and Danielle Solomon. Special thanks to voice actors Andrea O'Brien Vives and Jason Vives. Our sound engineer is Marcelino Van Calias. Our fact checker is LaPortia Thomas. Music supervisor is Tim Hotep Aku. The theme song is Freedom by Pharrell Williams. This episode features A Tale of Paris by A2BYO and Saxophone Sobs, performed by Ernie Erdman, Rudy Viadef, and Pietro Fassini. This episode featured Kev on stage as Charlie Case, Roderick Morrow as the vaudeville announcer, and Monet Exchange as Joe, the AI assistant. Read more by Michael Harriet at thegrio.com.